Good afternoon and welcome to event 57 of the Ledbury Poetry Festival. I would like to thank uh, the Arts Council of England for their support, without which we wouldn't have the festival that we have. But um, today especially, and thanks to our very successful Kickstarter campaign, um, I'd like to give a special thanks to all those who contributed uh, to the Kickstarter. And it's a, as a result of that, what we brought to the fe festival um, our four poets, our four Kickstarter poets, two of whom you're going to be listening to today. In particular, I'd like to uh, highlight Loretta Collins Clober, uh, Adam and Nelly Munti, and Edgar Rubio Windley for making very big contributions towards the, the project. Uh, the format for this afternoon is that we're going to start off with Enrique. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him in a minute. Um, he'll be followed by Shivani, uh, and then there will be a period where uh, Chloe, our director, will be asking them a few questions to give you a little bit of context and background. And then right at the end, each poet will give us one more poem each. So that's the idea behind it. Let me tell you a little bit about Enrique Winter, who was born in Santiago in Chile in 1982. He's a poet, of course, but he's also an editor and a lawyer. He is uh, the author of Guía de Despacho, which was the 2010 winner of the National Young Poet Competition. He's also author of Rascacielos, a winner of the National Book Council Fellowship, and Atar las Naves, which is the winner of the Victor Jara Arts Festival. In addition, he has uh, co-translated the anthology Decepciones by Philip Larkin in 2013, and he's co-authored the album Agua en Polvo, which in 2012 was the winner of the Fund for the Promotion of Chilean Music. He is also author of the novels Las Bolsas de Basura, amongst others. Bolsas de Basura mean rubbish bags. Enrique has four collections of poetry, and he has also translated Emily Dickinson, G.A. Chesterton, uh, Philip Larkin, and Charles Bernstein. So please give him a welcome. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks a lot for bringing us here. Thanks to Viv and Peter for being wonderful hosts. For Chloe and, uh, to Chloe and Philippa for everything they've done for this festival. And I want to dedicate this reading in particular to my Aunt Maruja and Uncle Bob, who came here from Birmingham. I've never had the chance to visit them, so thanks to the festival, <laughs> I had the chance now. So I will share with you one short poem from each of my four poetry collections. And the fourth one is really a long one, so let's start with the, with the short ones. This is from the first book. Soltar la cuerda. Nunca aprendimos a saltar la cuerda. Mis padres la olvidaron en el bazar de Presidente Rasuris 2901. Al techo del lugar sigue amarrada, balanceando a mi abuelo. From Skyscrapers, Rascacielos, 10 p.m. Ella es la noche y yo un rascacielos en la noche. Pincela mis ventanas de amarillo, esconde mi estructura. Arquitectura. Esto, la caja de zapatos donde vivo, la caja de zapatos donde vive mi padre, 
dos zapatos izquierdos. Cuando chica quería ser artista, veterinaria o astronauta, yo, arquitecto, me mira y no me cree. Una vez le pregunté qué consistía su trabajo. Me dijo que el arquitecto, primera vez que oía la palabra y me sonó importante de inmediato, construía el edificio y que la pega de mi papá consistía en que simplemente no se cayera. Un trabajo que solo imaginaba lugares me pareció extraordinario. No así la opaca labor del padre. Los lugares imaginados se le comunicaban con dibujos y a eso dediqué mi infancia, a dibujarle rascacielos y chozas. La pega de mi papá consiste en que simplemente no se caigan. Um, from the um, most recent poetry collection, uh, Lengua de Señas, um, this is a long poem that I will first, it has three parts, so you will get to know which part each is each, because the second one I will read it in Spanish. So, I'm using this mic, no? Good. Seated the word is a thing, and if a thing, most probably is, like the ear, a wound or those parentheses between the eyelash and brow for what is seen. How to trust an oil this transparent and clear after expired fritters, french fries, refried olio. Seated the word is a seclusion narrated with air. Then there are only two options for the battered and devalued word because this is about buying power or watching clouds against the moon deciding what they look like. Sea creatures, carriage with horses, a cavalier with a head wound, borders of adhesive tape just removed from the ad least available under the influence or alcohol or rain. The first option to isolate the veins that irrigated, pressing down with the thumbs, take away everything that is not the wound itself, puss, knives, and seal it with a band-aid, for instance for it to stop bleeding and not drench or be read as a wound, the word thought as a band-aid, as any of the thousands of band-aids produced by Chinese children. And then the one answered no, salt stings pepper and sprinkles it, green here and spicing the gas through piping to the fire in the frying pan, the salt spring over the wound that does not heal when written with a condom. But who would like to read it dead tired after work? En esta esquina, la palabra del poder. Y en esta otra, el poder de la palabra. La segunda opción es abrirla, ensancharla más allá de la carne, haciendo un océano de ese punto, rojo, nadar crawl en ella hasta más adentro, gritando en cada boqueo, estilo mariposa de donde el cuerpo supiera que estaba herido, traspasarlo si es posible, dejar a la sangre de los peces brotando en oleadas que pasen por ahí hasta por casualidad, rumbo a otros miembros que la requieran algas incluso por las calles submarinas, un maremoto que por la herida abierta de la palabra manen todas las palabras una sobre otra mojando hasta los cerros tan opacas que no se viera el rojo volviéndose el café de grano de los troncos por capas y leerlas todas horizontales como paisajes y verticales, retratos del fracaso pasional, porque nadie lee menos un graznido de pájaro viniendo a la tierra revuelta cuando es maleza aún y nada 
en la sangre hasta letear la amarilla del aroma y del aroma del azul, herida el arma y presagia un extraño en el gimnasio de la muerte. Pero lo de aislarla lo cedía sinceramente como opción, palabra blanca y hueso, fuera del cuerpo la noche amanece, limpia como la hija en el primer día de clases, parche en la boca, ambas palabras un castigo, una herida la segunda, a lavársela con jabón diciéndolo, sin lectura ni más sangre de la prometida por ella como herida, otro respondía que no, que somos mucha gente y más los lugares sin gente. And keep an eye on the grain of ink that has occluded the other senses, dragging the quinoa and couscous away from where it throws it the towel. Seated, bring back to the pores what words stole from them, the world nothing less. If I do not touch one foot with the other, I do not know if I am barefoot. Bring it back in use of the same words, life for the dead tongues, hands, noses and ears, dead, life by its own assassin, with forgiveness, without forgetting, the holes in the skin for the day to enter, pulsing the earplugs. The shadow over the word shadow tricks me, I believe it a crease in the anatomy book, to translate this way, transparent pages of organs, bones, skin, one over the other to the tacit tact. When you invoke a memory, you create it. I had lost the healthy habit of putting names to the things I love. Let the words stop coming late to them, to just name them, with the eyes and only see one place at a time. How many beings will call it Sunday today? that the amaretto ice cream is already in the almond and drips it. The almond anticipating the sun, like the acacia flowers, acacia head she seated, also piggy face, is a thing, she exclaims, when I seem to sweet. The Asians didn't name the colors. In red, black and white, they brought together what they saw. It matters if matte or gloss, wet or dry. The ancients didn't drink pisco and cola. With an ice cube in the pisco and cola, it looks like one of your eyes. I never forget a face. This that I write traveled to the future in that you're hearing it. And to do so, it is to the past that you travel. To my past, not to the ancients' past, but nothing is as terrible as who tell it to us thinks it is. Nostalgia's a kitchen knife, or the stain you clean with a finger and it's no longer on the finger or the table. Seated at the end is failure, but failure is not the end. The amphora fishbowl, flower pot, the toolboxes, sewing baskets. How many things are there that we don't need? To tell you how much you're worth, I need numbers and dots, commas, and there are none in here. Let the street steal me, between what things say and me. Windows rattling and there is nothing more I could read from the gust if I turn off the music or let it in, between what things say and. Thank you.
Thank you, Enrique. I'm going to introduce Shivani. Shivani Ramlokan is a Trinidadian poet. She's a critic, a book blogger. Her first book of poems, Everyone Knows I Am a Haunting, was shortlisted for the Felix Dennis Forward Prize for the best first collection. Sarala Estruk, who is one of our Ledbury emerging critics, has said this. This astonishing debut gives voice to sufferings and struggles of women, the queer and non-binary, reminiscent of Audre Lorde's call for the transformation of silence into language and action. But what makes this collection truly revelatory is its bold envisioning of a Trinidad, and beyond that, a world, in which identities and hierarchies of power are fluid rather than fixed. It is a fierce world, ripe with possibility. Please welcome her. Good afternoon. If you see me moving gingerly, it's because I have a camera, not a camera, a microphone attached to the back of my hair. <laughs> so no sudden movements from me. As Enrique has said, it is incredible to be here at Ledbury Poetry Festival, particularly through the generosity of people like Chloe, Philippa, Peter, and Viv. And I'd like to give special thanks to a Puerto Rican poet, Loretta Collins Cloba, also published by my press, People Tree Press, who are based in Leeds, who has given very generously to this Kickstarter, among so many others. And because of her fierce, transformative spirit, I'd like to begin my reading by invoking some lines from one of her poems. These are a few lines from Loretta's poem entitled, Justine has a few words for the Marquis de Sade. Your train is pulling out. I don't own anything but a few ribbons and my own scars. You can't touch them. Your train is pulling out, pendejo, and you're on it, I said. These poems I'm about to share are not suitable for minors, and they contain mention of sexual assault and rape. This is, I believe, one of the poems that Chloe would have heard me read at the Forward Prizes last year. On the third anniversary of the rape, don't say Tunapuna police station. Say you found yourself in the cave of a minotaur, not knowing how you got there with a lap of red thread. Don't say forced anal entry. Say you learned that some flowers bloom and die at night. Say you remember stamen filament, cross-pollination, say that hummingbirds are vital to the process. Give the minotaur time to write in the police ledger. Lap the red thread around the hummingbird vase. Don't say, I took out the garbage alone and he grabbed me by the waist and he was 
handsome. Say Shakespeare, recite Macbeth for the tropics. Lady Macbeth was the queen of carnival and she stabbed Banquo with a vagrant's shiv during Juve. She danced a blood dingole and gave her husband a Dimash gras upbraiding. I am in mud and glitter so far steeped that going back is not an option. Don't say rapist. Say engineer of aerosol deodorant because pepper spray is illegal. Anything is illegal. Fight back too hard and it's illegal. Your nails are illegal. Don't say you have a vagina. Say he stole your insurance policy, your bank boxes, your first car down payment. Say he took something he'll be punished for taking, not something you're punished for holding like red thread between your thighs. <laughs> this book was published in 2017 and at the launch in Trinidad at a festival that I helped run called the Bocas Lit Fest. It was the first time that my entire immediate family, my mother, my father, and my two brothers were present to hear my poems being read. And I thought, particularly when it came to my father hearing my work, what could be more suitable than the most outrageous and profane poem in here? And that's what I'd like to share with you. I thought, well, you know, if I read this and I don't get kicked out of the house afterwards, A, it's fine, I don't actually live at home, and I haven't for many years, and B, it's a sign that things will be okay. And you know what? Things were quite okay in the end. So if he could take it, you could take it. And I will mention before I start this that very recently, homosexuality was decriminalized in Trinidad and Tobago, which quite frankly, to be honest with you, was something I did not believe that I would live to see happen. Camp burned down. You and me and the fires we used to keep each other alive. The fire at Fort George, the fire at Camp Belandra, the fire at fuck my throat while my mother's on the phone and the island's flooding so everyone's indoors but you are the skinniest raft not provided for by the government, unlawful from here to Tobago and back. There are small welts on the backs of your hands as you braid me down to the campsite. This is the camp of Sunday afters. Your father's car radio melting our eardrums while you move in me. This is the fort of no retracing every place on my body you touch burned Nova, burned past recognition. You burn me into an atlas, into a Form 1 geometry tin, gripped inside a prefect's handspan, cock to cock to cheap Vaseline, burning me something new in each fire. Snow might come to Tunapuna, and your father would still spill my guts in front of the market. 
there would be hail in the public library and your father's pig cutlass opening my thigh. The weather could vomit itself, turn the catalogues of gale and gust inside out and the biggest damage would be what I've done to you. Remember the camp at the edge of the island. The white stones brining to nothing as you nerve ground them between thumb and tongue, scattering the wet cremations on my forehead. I bless you, you said. I bless you, hair. Nothing touched us except the rest of the world. I've been very lucky to spend time over the past couple of days with Enrique and Maya, and Laura and Pedro. I've studied Spanish for 10 years, but my spoken Spanish is very shy, as I've been telling them. So I perfectly understand all their conversations like a very good spy, <laughs> but <laughs> have not actually been participating. So there is one poem in here that is in a bit of Spanglish, and in honor of them, I would like to share it. It is about an unconventional marriage, an even more unconventional child. And it is called No Curandero, but Yo Sola, which roughly is no priestess but myself. Maria swallowed my knuckle bone one minute after being born. You heard the scream, but kept silent. I have written short letters ever thereafter, thanking La Virgen Sagrada, thanking the thrash-tongued goddess of my own shrine, the short door of straining birth, the oil on my forehead, the sweat of small fantasmas growing our daughter, her teeth, Maria in la playa, sorting with shells to drown. Maria in el campo, playing resurrection with the butcher's girl. Maria's eyes when you explain relicaria, sacrificio, sucuyan. Maria, I tell her, gathering sargassum y red chaparral. Before I met your father, my whole life was back country. Our first kiss was a hinterland. In it, he learned there are more rivers on an island than he knew. That the sun can set in a torn thread of sari silk. That the Wali Noche is blacker than Las Olas del Mar. Judging him, sea lashing him out of a safer life. My daughter in the ruined arms of a fairground Shiva, sticking his blue plaster with the ohm thrice etched in her ornate. My daughter, the bishop, blessing a lesser child's head in the fields, crumbling paste on his flax brow. My daughter at holy, mistaking a beer for blood, drinking all the same, drinking wild and different, drinking with my knuckle in the warning of her jaw. 
I've been asked if Maria is my daughter, and to answer that question, I would like to show you I have all my knuckle bones. <laughs> so no. Diwali is a Hindu holy festival of lights. It is my favorite, I think most complex, but still most important day of the year. And there is something called the Diwali Nagar in Trinidad, which is like a large fair for the festival. And it is at once a very commercial, but also very deeply religious space. There was a time in my life I fit in very well there, and I think that time has long since passed. Uh, when I was invited to the Nagar site to give a reading, I was asked to read this poem, and I was quite concerned about being thrown out, but it was okay. And again, I think it will be okay in this space. I think when you hear the title of the poem, you'll know why. I was so worried about reading it in a very conservative space cross-dressing at Diwali Nagar. The glass bangles are the easiest to steal. I use spit to force them on you, knuckling into each one with a soft growl. You succumb, wrists out, pink glancing on yellow, hitting red, each one cheap and pure. My sister's first orny comes next. It's thin, like stretched surgical gauze, spangled like America. And I smooth it over your cheeks before I kiss the gaps moths have loved with their teeth. For sindur, red lipstick smashed under thumb. For tikka, a rhinestone glued between your eyes. We giggle like blind chicks gaggling free of the slaughterhouse. And I scoop cotton candy into your mouth under the forearms of Mother Lakshmi. My sari and yours, trailing the wooden floorboards of a Mehendi booth. Inside, women and girls are paying for sunbursts, cloud spirals, Lotus vines looping one good wedlock after another into their veins. For adoration, I steal a cone of henna in both your names. On your knees, under the stage full of dancers, I trace a lotus onto your back, a broken moon between the segments of your toes, a trishula in the furrow of your brow, its three prongs splitting open when you catch me by the wrist, your bangles courting the blink and startle of dear light. The last poem now happens to be the last poem in this book. It is about someone named Vivek. And I was once asked in a workshop who Vivek was. And of course, I didn't answer at the time. I think I told some kind of lie. But when I thought about it afterwards, I came to the conclusion that Vivek is me. If I were born male in a conservative small island in the Caribbean Sea. Vivek chooses his husband. Your father said 
not to take faggots to your bed. So you call them festivals. Corpus Christi gave his body up between bites of bread, leavened a Sunday on your tongue so hot that you chase the burn with olive oil, sprung from some garden where other men have fallen to their knees. You knifed the best sounds of him clean with Eucharist butter, blessed the back and sides of his body, going over catechism scars with tongue point, cock heavy and poised for betrayal. You splinter the colors of Pagua in your bed. You let him a beer bleed your sheets. Consummation morning, a slit throat red, powder on your lashes, red powder on your nose bridge, joy, soft, as if he were sucking that nectar from the cunt of an improbable other. Small suitors of red lining the backs of his knees. You cling to the backs of his knees and let the temple peal bells of bright orgasm over you. Samhain you found in an aberyst with dive bar. And when he asked you, what island does your voice come from, handsome? You showed him mouth first, where it glottals over his girth tasted his grandfather's name in your soft palate for weeks after, the ancestry of him roving in your spit, routing you for fire, cleaning you for the virgin kill. The day you marry Hanukkah is a glock pointed to your father's face. You tell him, I am the queen, the comeuppance, the hard heretic that nature intended. Thank you. And, and now uh, we're just going to have uh, Chloe Garner, who's going to ask the poets some uh, questions. Chloe Garner being our artistic director of the festival. So it's bring your own chair as well. When you <laughs> so thank you both very much for reading. Uh, it's, uh, it's absolutely wonderful um, hearing you both together. Um, I'm going to start um, by just asking, I want to ask you both about the, um, how much, uh, the impact of place into your poems, because uh, obviously both of you have come from very different places and perhaps places that uh, we haven't been to or experienced. And it would just be lovely to hear about how you feel the places that and that can be places from childhood or at any point you want to talk about has kind of Im impacted on how the poems you write. Well, I guess the, the most obvious entrance is with the geographic place, no? Yeah. And um, be, it's funny, like, it's a kind of running joke with poets, with fellow poets from other countries in Latin America about how Chilean poets write always about the landscape or about Chile itself, no? Okay. Something that inside the country you don't, of course, you don't notice, you know, you just feel those things are in the poetry, you know? Like, yeah. uh, but it makes a lot of sense because the country itself is basically a landscape, you know? Like, mm -hmm. It's a place that is between the highest mountains from the Andean range mm -hmm. and the sea, and the, the, mountain, the mountains to one side, the sea to the other, very thin country between Patagonia, like the ice, and the, and the desert. It's mm -hmm. basically... You have everything around to make it be a total island, no? In, in a matter of uh, the speech, 
also, I mean, not only the, the landscape, but all the time you're seeing or mountains or sea or desert or ice. But at the same time, uh, in a matter of language, we've been historically uncommunicated to the rest of the country. So we have a very particular accent and a very particular way of not being able to even finish the phrase. I'm doing a huge effort here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that in general is very negative in, any as in every aspect of life, but it's very positive for poetry, you know? <laughs> we don't get to the point, we never say what we're meant to say, mm -hmm. and it's something lovely. Living in other places, I've noticed how ironic we are all the time, you know? And, mm -hmm. and how uncomfortable I feel when people are being too sincere. Right. Like, I feel like, so, so what's going on? Where are the subtitles? What's going on here? What does this person really want, you know? Mm -hmm. And they probably just want what they're saying, you know? <laughs> so. All this, you can, I, I hope you can still see it partially in translation, you know, like we have only, we have in Chile only two Nobel Prizes in any field, and they're both writers, both poets, Gabriela Mistral and Pablo Neruda. And you can imagine for a country of, with a very small population and very not relevant for the world, obviously, you know, how strong that tradition is. So going from landscape as a place, but going towards uh, the idea of writing poems, if you get to read our most important prose writers, let's say Bolaño or Donoso that you probably heard here, they wanted to be poets. Mm. And you can't believe it, you know, like it's obvious that one should want to be a novelist, you know. <laughs> the, everybody in Chile starts writing poems. The painters, you know, like you say, Mata, our biggest painter, he also wrote poetry. So it's very interesting, like the way it, the idiosyncratic way into entering a certain in sensitiveness space mm. when you're a young person mm. is through verses, you know. Mm. Mm. And there's a and we take it very seriously. Mm. What is quite funny too when you go, when you get to talk to fellow poets anywhere else, yeah. And you see how, uh, in a sense of how stupid we appear to be, like taking this so seriously, like a matter of life or death, you know. Okay. So I think that could be perhaps the introduction to the question mm. of, of place, you know, with, mm. with, uh, with poetry, you know, and it's somehow something we look in the other areas of literature too, you know, mm. like the novels we most appreciate, appreciate probably don't really have a concrete plot or like they're really closer to what we understand of poetry mm. because of rhythm, because of, uh, of images. Mm. Yeah. Mm, um, you have heard several place names in the poems that I've shared. There is the Tunapuna police station and the Diwali Nagar. And for a long time, growing up in the shadow of being taught to love and revere British poems, uh, being a former colony of, of Britain and part of the, the Commonwealth now, it took me a long time and considerable effort to allow myself to include the places of my own space in the poems with intention. And whether that went intention that was serious or comical or ironic, to allow myself place as an Indo-Caribbean woman, also living within certain realities that were quite orthodox in ways that I certainly am not, has been challenging. And so it is an act of reclamation to name the poems specifically and to say they come from these parts of Trinidad, especially rural and semi-rural places, which is where I grew up and spent most of my girlhood and still a lot of my adult life, because I don't think I understood 
at the time that this would be a radical reinvention, simply to stop asking for permission to name a space and to say, I come from this place and people I know, many of whom are afraid of poems and perceive the space of poetry as elitist and not for them, are of these spaces too. And while they may not feel that they have access to poetry, they certainly have poems within them and they are poetic beings. And it was a way of trying to honor those voices as well, specifically the voices of women and non-binary people. And to say, you come from this space and I see that you are here, farmers, laborers, housewives, homemakers, people of industry, people who, when I was young, I remember seeing my grandparents selling milk in giant iron canisters to Nestle and working their farms. And I thought, these are some of the most poetic people I know, and they all have names and came from places within this island and before that from the Indian continent. So why should I feel embarrassed to strip places I had never been to at that point in time, like Westminster Abbey, from the poems, because they were not serving me past armor, protection that I thought I needed to enter the space of poems. But as I grow older, I lose that faculty of seeking permission and seeking forgiveness and being afraid of making people in power uncomfortable. And it's very liberating, and you should all try it. <laughs> That's really interesting, because I was thinking a bit um, about structures in your poems. So um, your poems have um, quite uh, skyscrapers or different structures and, and, and the architecture. And then I was thinking of structures of power mm -hmm. or uh, religion, which uh, different religions appear in uh, your poems. So I was thinking it'd be interesting to ask you about how you use poetry to kind of unpack kind of these different structures mm -hmm. that you're experiencing or interested in? Or so. So it's a great question because I'm, I'm thrilled by the way Shivani works with the self in her poems, you know? And I think it's strange how in 20th, 21st century uh, we have to kind of, uh, in her case or mine or others, like kind of try to destroy a wall of the idea of self in poetry, you know? Mm -hmm. Like when you go to see a theater play or you read a novel or you watch a movie, you just assume the possibility of being others is just in the core of it, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah. I, and, and in poetry it appears to be some kind of appropriation, you know, like when she, uh, can I talk about this person if I'm mm -hmm. not in that position? I mean, why, why not? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, understanding obviously all the political implications of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there was a, um, is, in, in the Chilean tradition there was very criticized this idea of Neruda in one of his main poems telling, I come to talk for your uh, dead mouth, no? I come mm -hmm. to talk for, your, for you, you know? But it's not about talking for a dead mouth, but, but to, to be uh, generating the possibility of a dialogue of, tho of those others and, and, and yourself too, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, in one book in particular, Skyscrapers, by the way, the one you were talking about, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I put a lot of characters, speaking all of them in first person, you know? Mm -hmm. I was very... Um, tired in my generation of poetry written in third person about themselves. Yes. I mean, I knew the poets, they were talking about themselves in third person, you know? Right. And why don't, why don't I write in first person about others, you know? Yeah. And make yeah. this thing, like, really the tension of it, you know? Yeah. Like, I was backpacking all of South America, you know, with a bit of wheat and rice, you know? And, and, 
really thrilled by these other experiences, you know, not only the closer ones to me, the ones I could see as the ones you say in, this, in one's own island, but others, and I felt, okay, there's something to be said here, and if I put it together with these other things others have to say, mm. it's pretty much a miracle that we live together and we're not killing each other, I mean, yeah. more than we do, I mean, <laughs> honestly, like, it's a huge thing to celebrate how we can dialogue, you know? So, in those structures, in particular in skyscrapers, my idea was, as a critic say, so said really, it wasn't really my idea, but I think he was very clear in putting it like this, it's pretty much like a horizontal skyscraper, you know? Mm -hmm. You're like seeing every other, every people, every life from mm -hmm. one another mm -hmm. is more or less in the same level of importance in this discourse, you know? Mm -hmm. And the main poem from that book um, is called The Sky is Smaller Than the Skyscrapers, you know? Like the divine or that space mm -hmm. is much smaller, as you say too, you know, with this religions shown in the poetry, much smaller than the um, sum of all these experiences, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the part of how you structure this in poetry is crucial too. Because if I could simplify to just two ideas what poetry more or less is or aims to be, it's of course in one sense like the canto of the tribe, you know, the singing of us, you know, like as people we say, we sing our sadness, our happiness, like what makes us human in a sense, you know, in a very deep transcendent, no? But at the same time, it's the only place in which language doesn't have another function. Mm. I don't have to sell something like mm. in advertisement. I don't have mm. to prescribe a conduct like in the legal areas, not to <laughs> tell a plot, etc., etc. It's just language itself, mm. proving itself its possibilities. Mm. So I think the structure one makes in poetry is the most political part of it. If I, let's say, denounce the excesses of power mm. with a poem, that uses exactly the same structure with which that power is in power, mm. like I'm not doing anything political, you know? And it w the political would be to use the, uh, the same language, the, the Spanish in this case, to make it rounded, you know? To free ourselves from, um, from believing is true what they're imposing upon us, you know? Mm. And they, you can think of many days, you know? So the structure of, of my writing has been, has shifted in many senses from um, certain traditional things. I've done like sonnets and, and that kind of stuff uh, with contemporary issues, like not depending on the tone of a sonnet, but on the structure, uh, towards things that appear to be very free, but repeat certain uh, um, rhythms from the Latin culture, you know, like from, from the Italian or whatever, like that for one sounds very familiar, so you kind of go with the flow, mm. but it appears not to be. So when we, with a f one fit in, one fit outside, you know, and I think that's more or less the way I think it should be done if one can say that, you know, or it could be done. Well, that's why I work with musicians too, or with audiovisuals, you know, um, how you can uh, be seductive in a sense, mm -hmm. and at the same time, be harsh enough to make one awake of what you're trying to pose or put into tension, you know, like I'm not bringing any truth, like mm -hmm. the writing I like is the one who is in the process of doubt, no? of mm, doubting. And yeah. I think I've been more confident lately to show the process of the doubt, you know? Like this mm. long poem was pretty much like a compilation of answers mm. when people ask you what poetry is about, <laughs> what you're trying to say, you know? <laughs> While the others were more like fixed images, you know? Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to write specifically about the things that I often wish I didn't have to. Mm. And so, when this book was published, it was my first book, 
uh, my mother, who is my most ardent supporter and fan, and without whom I do not think this life, which is wonderfully freeing in some ways, and incredibly uncertain, especially financially and others, would be possible. Mm. She said, oh, Shivani, I'm so glad. Now you can write some happy poems. <laughs> and unfortunately, I think the poems that have emerged since everyone knows I'm a haunting are even bleaker and more filled with assault and violence and what happens to those who are most underserved and most unseen. And while I've been away, a copy of Poetry Magazine's July and August issue, which is dedicated to global Anglophone Indian poets arrived. And it has, I think, my most disturbing poem to date in it. I'll just give you the title, which is called The Night I Fucked the Border Patrol Agent. And my mother was so excited to see the magazine with her, and I did not tell her <laughs> about the poem. And, you know, mail came, and as we do on WhatsApp, she kind of sends me a picture. This is what came for you. It looks like a magazine. I'm like, yes, open it. You know, let's see what it, what it is. Not thinking. She said, oh my God, it's a poetry magazine. Ah, oh, it's so beautiful. You have a poem, I'm going to read it. <laughs> Ten minutes passed. It's a very short poem. It's, about, it's, it's less than half a page. And then, oh, okay, I'm going to put this on your desk. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I would be lying if I said I could just feel cavalier about that. I don't. It's, it's a difficult thing to know that you write things that will upset your mother, that contain graphic scenes of animal assault in this case, but I wouldn't write that poem as a measure of anything except rebellion and resistance, unless I absolutely had to, and I could not escape it. It was a confrontation of a kind of power that I find increasingly upsetting, which is the way that global borders are policed and militarized, which we're also experiencing with incredible xenophobia in the Trinidadian culture towards the Venezuelan migrant crisis. And so the poem in and of itself, literally, would not let me sleep until I wrote it. And that's the kind of service I believe it important to perform. Not that I think I am a radical agent or try to ascribe self-importance to myself in that way, but I think if you, as almost a muscular conduit, can give that voice, it is your responsibility to give it. And in fact, it will probably haunt you until you do. Mm. Hmm. That's really, uh, there's so much to think about with what you're both saying. It's really interesting. I mean, I, um, there's, there's a line in, that you have in uh, your book, which is, um, nothing the forest raises is a monster. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's a beautiful line. And I think um, it's interesting when you talk about that and then thinking about the subject matter that's uh, difficult. And I think what both of you do in your poems, or at least what I feel is happening, is this um, way that the earth and nature, uh, suns or, you know, salt or um, uh, forests are kind of mingling with bodies. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, so I think it'd be really interesting just to hear you talk about that, because it's really powerful, I think. And so, who'd like to begin? Make a start. I'm sure. I will finish with a poem. Yeah. Well, I normally uh, just uh, decide at the moment, no, out of like the simples. Mm -hmm. It's like I really need to need yep. to read this now or to write it now. But 
as I have to bring, as I'm bringing the PowerPoints, I, I already know what I'm reading at the end. Yeah. And it's a poem that think, answers a lot of, of yeah, that, you know. But, it, but if, if you need an answer, perhaps it could take something of what you were just saying that really uh, I, uh, resonated to me. That when, like I, the day I fucked the, the guard patrol, ah. no? like, it, it's interesting because many of you for sure know this, this they fuck you up, your mom and dad, yeah. they may not mean to, but they do, no? mm -hmm. like by Philip Larkin. And how this idea of it being radical, but inside certain structures of what, I mean, we, probably when we read that poem from you, it's still poetry mm -hmm. and it's still lyrical in a sense, you know? And it's very interesting how you can do this very demanding um, uh, proposals inside a, a, a structure that somehow says something to others who have been touched by your own poetry before, you know? And I think Larkin was great in that, you know? Because he was using this pentameter jambic with these rhymes, and it's, it was still a poem, yeah. no? With, with somebody who, from somebody who would have been the poet laureate, you know? Like, it's, it's still inside a place of discussion, you know? Yeah. So that's very interesting. I, was, I, I remember that with, the, with this patrol, no? Yeah, and this is why I feel that, you know, Enrique, it's, might sound like a cliche, I think it is a gift to be able to do what we do yeah. because as much as this work is demanding and takes many things from us and may be hard to replenish, I'm also not having to write corporate factual reports in an office. I'm not having to conduct deep sea mining and, and degrading the planet's oceans that way. I get to use the vehicle of the poem, which is something sacred to me, something beautiful, something energetic. So the work can cost what it costs and I will be, I hope, willing to continue paying it. I think once the vehicle is poetry, once I can keep turning to that, to understand myself in relation to the world and to understand other people better. And, and to specifically understand, I think in my work, all the ways that women's voices have been historically denied throughout history. It's been something I've loved and needed to read about and, and then found it imperative to write about. And, and to answer what, what Chloe has asked about nature, I grew up, as I've said, in semi-rural. It was then rural, it has now become semi-rural because of urban development spreading its tentacles across the island, Trinidad. And I went to, at 11 or 12, a prestigious uh, Catholic convent school in Port of Spain, the capital. So it's quite some distance away. And I was marked out, I think with, with the innate cruelty of young children which I certainly was not immune to myself. I certainly practiced kinds of cruelty too. So I wasn't an innocent, whatever that is. No one is born innocent, that's a lie. Mm -hmm. um, who marked me out as being very distinct because of my country upbringing. And I did not have, we at that time didn't have 24 seven running water, certainly didn't have internet. I didn't have a cellular phone until I was uh, 17 or 18. Uh, my hair was very long and unfashionable and always in two pigtails. I um, was Hindu when most of them were Roman Catholic or other kinds of Christian. And so I spent a lot of my education hiding from the deep, deep bush of myself and pretending to not live where I was or concealing certain facts about my rural upbringing. And it has been a journey of reclaiming that actual wilderness and being proud of the bush and the snakes that live there and the cattle and pig farm that my grandparents ran, and the rural country bar. All of these things have become 
so important in my work in ways I couldn't have predicted. And I spent such a long time being so deeply ashamed of them and crying in locked bathroom stalls about them and feeling that I could never go back to school. Although, you know, that said, I, I also loved going to that school in ways that are equally complex and that education has made me who I am in many ways. And I wish, you know, with all the wisdom we have now, I could tell that younger person that I was that that's what I have tattooed on my arm, that thing that Ovid says, that someday this pain will be useful to you. And it, it absolutely was. Yeah, and you know, like, it, poetry is pretty much the space of risk. I mean, what you were just saying about how pri what a privilege is to have time to do this, you know? And it, it's obviously the, the part of the, of the risk against how the other things of human structures work, you know? So I think it's quite a natural step to go into, into nature. Sorry for the repetition, not natural than nature, but it's true, like it's quite, because that's where, in a sense, it's something to celebrate, as Shivani says, but it's also the place of risk and of mm -hmm. insecurity, you know? Mm -hmm. My desert poems are pretty much like, okay, here I don't know if time is going on, I don't know what's close and what's far away, mm -hmm. you know? I don't have reference, you know? And it's something you don't think about, like, Part of having this conversation is like knowing that I'm like at this distance from you and the people who are here and the, uh, there's a lot of issue, um, factors that I'm kind of controlling, you know? When you get to certain spaces of nature, you're totally out of control of that, you know? And it makes perfect sense to that God is, the, that the sun is a God, you know? Yeah. It makes perfect <laughs> sense. Who would think of somebody with a beard if you're like <laughs> really like really sweaty and the next minute you're totally cold because it depends on the moment it appears or not, you know? And, and these matters of, of, of life or death, you know, like uh, appearing there. And finally, when one thinks in, in, on poetry, you know, like, like uh, feeling and image and time, all those things change completely out of the main cities, you know? Mm. So it has to do with writing as a reaction to, you know? If mm. I'm, a, I'm a city person, you know, mm. and, and it's a permanent reaction to go out of that, you know? Mm. I come to a place like this and I've been writing more than I write, you know, yeah. in another context, you know? Yeah. It's somehow, ah. So flowers here are like this, and they grow like that, you know? Like, or from, from the obvious yeah, beautiful yeah, yeah. to other things, you know? Like, yeah. ah, okay, so it will, the sun will not go out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you get, like, much more conscious of, like, physically, you know? Yes. Like, your animal part, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that animal part, I think, is crucial. Like, the moment you write mm -hmm. in a way without an agenda, like, like, just because you really need to write it, mm. as you really need to eat or to mm. sleep in, mm -hmm. a, in a more physical way. Mm. So I think that's how nature tends to appear all the time, you know, mm. I'm, I'm, even in my process, it's not, I get a bit bored after a few pages inside a room, you know, like, <laughs> I want to go out, okay. my characters want yeah. to go out. <laughs> yeah, great. Gosh, I'm great. I'm glad to hear you're writing loads, because I think Ledbury has that magic spell on people. They come here and they just start writing loads. <laughs> it's a very magic thing. Okay, so... Uh, I think we've got time now for your final poems. Yeah. Really I'm not being rude, I'm just finding it on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sending a tweet or anything. <laughs> so I'll carry off my chair. <laughs> You're writing it now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> As a response. <laughs> Uh, this poem is not in Everyone Knows I'm a Haunting. It was written after that. It's not the one about Border Patrol agent fucking, don't worry. I would warn you profusely. I'd warn myself before I tried to read that in public. I never have. Um, and it's going to appear in an anthology edited by 
the indigenous Native American poet Natalie Diaz called Bodies Built for Game, which explores the relationships that poets have to athletics. I was very athletic in my teenage years, <coughs> often to the point of orthorexic unhealth. So I was a martial artist and I also ran, as this poem speaks a bit about. And it is a real contemplation of what it's like to find yourself in your adult years as a fat person about whom people assume you have had no relationship to health or to wellness or to body ideation. I had, and I think I prefer myself this way. All the flesh singing. When I was 18, I licked the blood from my shins, curled around myself. Brown, comma, woman of round breasts and tiffins steeped in curry. The white girls of track and field let me know they could smell me. I still ran through the sweat and shame of it. Joy was the muscle I stretched. Joy on the bitumen. Joy in the spasm. Joy in dal and rice and running. At 30, I twice outweigh myself who ran. I fold continental food with diasporas, tandoori lamb layered on basabshat, mutter paneer over Aji's roti, swollen like a secret pregnancy. My father says I swallowed myself whole, devoured a lifetime of races. At night, I lace the brightest pink nikes and break into the Arima village room. Naked, I confound the moonlight with the sight of a fat woman running. I mastermind my flesh in nothing but brown skin and bad mind Nothing but folds rippling and muscling, all the food and fare in me, glorious samosas, green dal, seared cauliflower skulls. I river, I promenade, I orchestrate the track with a body big enough to hold these 30 years of desserts and early onset diabetes these widow whales of soul splitting from frame with each pound of flesh I have ransomed. Oh, how the running stitches it together, reunites me at the finish and start. Chafed, hungry, the oxygen bloodying me, the whistle of my fresh joy, relentless. Thank you. I will end with a poem uh, included in an album. You can check on the web. That, um, this is the first song of the album. And it's basically a bus ride from Lima to Cusco in Peru. So I guess the music makes it more clear in a wine or rhythm. But now here we are sharing the words. Soles. 
Un sol, la dicha, sorprende a la mesera que recibe la propina cual Dios del mismo nombre. Un sol rojo en la playa, píxel en el ojo de una foto digital que no debimos sacarnos, interrumpida por líneas de nube, las cataratas y la tele del bus, polvo que impide otros polvos en un desierto que ningún pasajero reclama, inadvertido el mar, el iris. El bus auspice la negra carretera que corta la revol, una camiseta que sería de Ranger si estuviera en mi tierra y no, donde ninguna construcción se ha terminado para eludir impuestos o mirar las estrellas apenas cubiertas por la ropa interior colgada y flameando, camisetas de un equipo pequeño visitando el estadio de la masa tevita, la rueda del triciclo armando un taco, este sol, tres cuartos en el agua su reflejo, más la pantalla del bus que ese ojo rojo. Una vez me dijeron que era un sol, y si para tocar el sol bastaba poner el dedo chico en la primera cuerda luego del do, siempre enseñaron mejor el anular, voltearlos, como el cartel cerrado en los boliches, y me dan ganas de contarles cuál es el cambio de sol a peso. Pero la taza es otra, juego de manos y muecas cuando lo pronuncio en la guitarra. En el cielo despejado no hay puntos de referencia para decir cerca o lejos. Mejor que venga el sol que trae a quienes lo permiten apenas 15 días retribuyendo el año de maltratos. Era gratis, gratuito, gratis, gratis, con el color ladrillo de las casas sin terminar. Ya, casi todas, dorado el oro, el día, el hombre... No la plata, la luna, la mujer, acaso la pantalla o bien la dicha de la mesera que recibe, la propina cual Dios del mismo nombre. Las decenas de veces que intentamos la foto con la puesta de sol, la espera por revelar un rollo que nos presentaría, negros de nuevo tapando un rojo inentendible. En la ciudad que habito, yo decido si me alimento, si me abrigo, si miro mis pisadas cuando vuelva. Quien decide afuera es el sol, si crece algo de comer, si muero de hipotermio transpiro. Le rezaría a él antes que a nadie. Yema de huevo de campo, derramada en mar la copa, no del galán de la tele, sí de los espectadores. La clara previa a revolverse es una nube y el cielo cubre la paila, el ruido de ese aceite recuerda al de las olas cuando se está en el mar y no con la conchita en el oído, a regadores cuando empapan y las películas nos robaron hasta el atardecer. El bus nos ha robado el viaje. Al sol lo construyeron jornaleros como los de este bus que ni lo miran ahora que la energía puede inventarse en otros soles que no los broncearán aunque se juren invitados. Difícil adorar a un único sol cuando ya existe la palabra soles y uno no sabe si vio el mismo ayer, cambiaron el camino y la abrazada cuando al camino le salieron brotes y a la que amamos el fruncido ceño, las decenas de veces que intentamos la foto con la puesta de sol, la espera por revelar un rollo que nos presentaría, negros de nuevo tapando un rojo inentendible como el del ojo en tomas digitales. ¿Acaso quede el puro rojo que ven los cerrados cuando al sol, delgados pájaros de interferencia? La terra moza, 
¿Qué palabra dice que para una mejor visión de la película se cierren las cortinas? Muchas gracias. That was wonderful. Thank you both, Enrique and Shivani. Thank you so much for coming all the way. We've so enjoyed having you here at the festival and um, ask you to give them one last applause. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.